0: You're listening
1: to New New Voices, Voices. a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I talk with Chike Jeffers, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University, and Canada Research Chair in Africana Philosophy. Our interview focuses on the history of Africana Philosophy. We discuss the value of language to philosophy and to conceptions of identity and culture, connections between the Africana tradition and current political and philosophical theories of race and oppression, the importance of being critical about why you want to apply philosophical methods to a text, and what it means to read someone as a philosopher.
0: Hi, I'm Chike Jeffers. I recently became the Canada Research Chair in Africana Philosophy. Uh, So that's that's an exciting new development.
1: So how did you you first get interested and start work on Africana Philosophy um, and then in particular historical Africana Philosophy or the, the history of Africana Philosophy?
0: I think that's something that is somewhat unique about My path, or actually, I I don't. I wouldn't call this unique, but I would say that generationally, um, there's likely a difference here. Mm -hmm. In terms of um, when I think of previous uh, generations of uh, professional philosophers who do Africana philosophy, I think that often they were trained in the sort of standard Western tradition Mm -hmm. and uh, decided to forge the path. You know, uh, decided to. Break the ground uh, in terms of applying the tools of philosophy to the issues and experiences of uh, the people of the Black world, uh, and/or the thoughts of people in the history of Africana thought. Mm -hmm. In my case, it's really my interest in Africana philosophy that made me decide that that being a philosopher was the Right career choice for me, so I began undergrad studying film, and I realized sort of partway through that I wasn't interested in going into um, the film industry. I realized I was more attracted to the academic side of things, and so at first I sort I just changed from film production to film studies, and you know wondered whether I might end up being a film critic or something like that. But but I also had Uh, from stuff I had read uh, outside the classroom realized that I had some interest in philosophy. And so I I took that on as a minor, uh, which then it was my major only in the last year of my undergrad. And so as I was making that switch, uh, I mean, I very swiftly found out that philosophy was interesting to me. I think that it was sort of, you know, clear to me early on. Well, actually, I uh, don't know that I thought had the thought this is the kind of thing I'd like to do. Mm. I mean I would have had a thought something like, you know, this is really interesting to me and I feel good at it. Yeah. Right. And so a story that I have I think probably told before, I think eventually uh people, you know, finding interviews with me will uh will start to get sick of the story. But <laughs> uh <laughs> but I yeah, in my third year of undergrad. I did two things. I mean, in my um, school's bookstore, my university's bookstore, um, I found George Yancey's book, African-American Philosophers, 17 Conversations, a book of interviews uh, with African-American professional philosophers. Um, and also I took a course on African philosophy and the, the professor teaching that course at York University, where I did my undergrad in Toronto. It was Professor Esteve Morera, who was not himself a researcher in African philosophy, but, you know, had read enough that he felt able to, you know, offer this course at the undergraduate level. Right? And mm-hmm. really, those two things made me realize that philosophy was more than just fun and more than just I like this and I'm good at it, but, you know, uh, oh, actually probably what I want to do with my life. And so, in that sense, it's actually exposure to Africana philosophy and exposure to role models, Uh, you know, in the case of the various philosophers interviewed in in Yancey's book. It's really that exposure that that led me into the profession, right? And and so, as I was suggesting, I think that that's, you know, a a sort of a, a nice generational thing that... You know that that there's enough uh, people out there doing the work that even in the I guess would be early to mid 2000s. That would be when I you know made the decision to go into philosophy as a career. There was enough work in Africana philosophy that it would that it was you know not only something that enticed me but that really it was the reason. It was the thing that made, as I said, philosophy seem like more than just something interesting, but rather something through which I could. You know, make a useful contribution mm-hmm. to my community, and and I think the the interest in things historical sort of came naturally to me. Um, you know, I think that I sort of took for granted as soon as. I started to have an interest in philosophy that part of doing philosophy well is engaging with the history of philosophy. But certainly it's the case that eventually I would think about this kind of thing a lot more explicitly. I think, you know, yeah, even as a graduate student, I'm not sure. Well, what I would say is that by the time I was doing my dissertation, I knew that I wanted to be able to offer what to me, you know, are the two sides of the coin or Two halves of the something, the whole. <laughs> I'm not sure what metaphor I'm going for, but, you know, uh, the, the way. Whole... <laughs> yeah, two things of the thing. You know, <laughs> um, the, uh, the historical investigation and the sort of, you know, contemporary intervention, so to speak. And so, you know, basically the way that, that my dissertation worked, I had three more historical chapters, the first of which was on. We actually started with a German philosopher, um, Johann Gottfried Herder, who I found to be sort of important for the tradition that I then traced through Africana philosophy. But the first chapter looked at Herder, and it also looked at the 19th century Africana philosopher Edward Blyden. The second chapter looked at W.E.B. Du Bois, and the third chapter looked at uh, Leopold Senghor. And so that was sort of the more historical part. And then, and what I was looking at in them is the ways in which the figures in Africana philosophy, the way that they put forward what I was calling the Black Gift thesis, which I describe as a combination of cultural nationalism and cosmopolitanism and understanding the idea of cultural nationalism as you know, the idea of preserving and cultivating, you know, a people's distinctive culture and then understanding cosmopolitanism, especially of the cultural variety of the idea that we should be engaging with others, learning from others, mixing cultures, uh, and so on. The idea of the Black Gift thesis is, is that we preserve and maintain our culture, not just for our own sake, but precisely because doing so allows us to contribute to a sort of global exchange in which we all enrich each other. And so there's sort of both the cultural nationalism and the cosmopolitanism there. And, and, and so, so Herder is in there because I think he does prefigure that. But then I was looking at that as a theme in in the history of Africana philosophy. And then um, the chapters four, five, and six were me trying to think about, well, what what do we do with this tradition now? And uh, that was a pretty uh, thorough retelling of my dissertation, but I think it's sort of useful for yeah. for showing what I was hoping to be from the beginning. That I was always hoping to be someone who was engaging in contemporary debates, but I was always also hoping to be someone who was doing useful work, unearthing um, a tradition, exploring, you know, the tradition and and trying to, you know, to understand what these thinkers of the past really were trying to say.
1: So there's so much in what you just said. One thread I would love to pick up on, um, something I was thinking about both as you were talking and as I was reading your work, uh, is just how to balance or reconcile reading historical texts, especially Africana historical texts, Mm -hmm. for what is valuable and applicable and informative and and expansive on our contemporary Western political theories and philosophies, Mm -hmm. while also keeping an eye to recognizing and understanding those elements that are interesting and valuable insofar as they are different uh, and can't be captured by Western philosophical debates or concepts.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, you have what I take to be a nice example of this in your paper, Embodying Justice in Ancient Egypt, mm. where you speak both of the applicability of these ancient Egyptian concepts of justice to our current political understanding, while also highlighting a concept, Maat,
2: mm-hmm. that
1: resists translation. Um, mm-hmm. So I would love to hear more about how you walk that line mm-hmm. in research and the value of making connections compared to the value of emphasizing difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I guess I'm sort of realizing even just in this very moment how much I always believe that uh, the thought of the past has something to teach us, something, you know, a way to, a way, uh, to be, you know, Interesting and useful to us right now, um, and 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 so there's maybe a sort of optimism involved in that. But um, as I'm reflecting on it, you know, and I and I want to move toward talking about uh, the example that you gave with the the ancient Egyptian paper. But you know, when I'm say in engaging with someone like W. E. B. Du Bois or Anna Julia Cooper um, or uh, Edward Blyden. Just, I want to be very clear about how we sort of understand them in their context. I mean, and, and so often, you know, to get the full force of a claim, you need a bunch of historical context, right? Um, so there's the importance of placing them uh, in proper context, sometimes to even just to literally understand what is being said. And at the same time, when when you're talking about these figures, even when you're, you know, going all the way back to the 19th century and the three examples that I just used, I mean, all of them moved into the 20th century, but they all also wrote in the, uh, in the 19th century. And so even when, you know, we're that separated in time, you know, there is a, an important factor here. And, you know, we can also say that in a way it's a, an importantly sad point, but nevertheless, it's a very real and important point, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm looking at figures in the 19th century who are engaging philosophically with an eye to grappling with white supremacy, with an eye to understanding, you know, uh, what resistance to oppression looks like and things of that nature, Mm -hmm. right? Then there's necessarily going to be uh, an easy way to fit that into contemporary conversations that is our conversations of today, because we are still grappling with racial yeah. inequality, disadvantage, oppression, and so on right and so so there's a way in which when I'm looking at the Africana tradition, then when I'm looking at that which is modern, you know in the sense of being like the stuff, especially. From let's say the, the 18th century on, I mean, Kwabana Otoba Kugoano is a figure that I've written on, who is from the 18th century and is a, and is one of my favorite philosophers. I really would say, you know, and, and yeah. So again, very very separated in time from him. You know, he's he's publishing a book in 1787. You know, and so we're uh, I guess uh, you know headed in the direction of whatever 250 years from then. So, yeah, there's this, you know, interesting and, uh, again, you know, in in a certain sense, very sad, but nevertheless, very important way Mm -hmm. in which, you know, um, by engaging with these figures who were trying to um, grapple with the meaning of race and racism, it is not that hard for me then to see them as part of a conversation that we're continuing uh, to have today. Now, at the same time, it is, of course, also the case that. You know that my interest goes way back and in, in terms of you know uh, Africana philosophy mm-hmm. as a written enterprise, then, yeah, ancient ancient Egyptian thought is uh, is very important to me and something that I have lots of interest in. But you know, it's at that point that um, that to me, the humanness of mm-hmm. philosophy for lack of a better term, sort of makes it the case that that we're always going to be able to find ways of learning from, you know, even stuff that was written, you know, not 250 years ago, but 4,500 years ago. And to me, that's one of the exciting things about looking at the philosophical dimensions of ancient Egyptian thought. I mean, because, you know, philosophy as it's taught in the standard canon, so to speak, you know already has a long history because you're, you know you're going back at least a few hundred years into the BC era, <laughs> but once you realize um, the riches of ancient Egyptian thought, then you realize well going going a few centuries into the BC era is not enough you got to go a couple millennia in <laughs> um, and, uh, and and to me that is exciting you know in terms of sort of appreciating the span of of human thoughts, and as you say in the in in that article of mine, embodying justice in ancient Egypt, the tale of the open peasant as a classic of political philosophy. Yeah, on the one hand, I do want to uh, at certain points emphasize, you know, the conceptual difference, right? And and yeah, it's really interesting that we have this term maat that is uh, that it, it seems to be best translated at some points as truth, best translated at some points as justice. And, you know, I like to point out that there's a part of the tale of the eloquent peasant where the, where there's a line, speak ma'at, do ma'at, mm-hmm. which is a, just an interesting line because of the fact that, you know, if you translate the term as truth, then the first part sounds normal, speak truth, but then it's like, wait, what does do mm-hmm. truth mean? Yeah. Right, you know, and that, but then similarly, you know, what does it mean to speak justice, yeah. if, even though, even though, do justice that that seems um pretty easy to understand as well, right? And so, so that, so it's interesting then, right, to try and like figure out what's going on there conceptually. Uh, but to make a, an autobiographical point here as well, there's an interesting way in which the idea of trying to understand what ma'at is and how to express it as a concept there's an important way in which as i am approaching it right i mean then yes part of part of what i want to capture is how how distant in time we are from from that and 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 how this this you know a a very different mindset arguably that one has to get into to 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 try to understand such a term Mm -hmm. but there's an experience i have and It may not as yet be that common in philosophy, but but I'm sure I'm not the only one. For me, the term ma'at is a term I knew as a child. Because what it means to have parents and godparents and various people in your community who... Who are invested in what has been called, you know, African-centered thought or Afrocentric thought, et cetera, et cetera. So, so if you if you're raised a certain way, then you already have the idea uh, of certain ancient Egyptian concepts and phrases as part of a cultural milieu that you are familiar with, right? Which, which also, you know, as an aside, can make for an interesting point of of discomfort so you you have um in contemporary language um, particularly among i would say educated black people of a certain age you have a, a a term of abuse hotep and this term is is used especially when it's used as a term abuse it's especially used to sort of uh describe a, a kind of homophobic misogynistic kind of person. Actually, sometimes people really are just aiming to uh, get at some of those ills. More specifically, it's it's associating those kinds of ills with a particular kind of African-centered approach, right? And uh, so the idea of, of, of a certain investment in Black and African identity that is then uh, expressed in very... Let's say patriarchal and, and homophobic ways. Yeah, and, but it's like for myself to hear that as a term of abuse is going to be weird because I know of it as a greeting that means peace, and to use it in such a way is, of course, not at all to to commit yourself to any of the negative things that um, that are being associated with it when it's being used as a uh, as a term of abuse in this sense. So. I think that how I'll sort of wrap up this somewhat long answer is to say that I am very much shaped by a certain kind of cultural orientation that is, you know, that, the, the, that takes Africa to be important and African culture to be important to not just people directly from Africa, but those of us like myself of the African diaspora from Toronto. My parents are from uh, the Caribbean. So I'm shaped by that, right? Mm. And it's true. The truth behind the use of the of "hotep" as a term of abuse is that uh, is that of course there are ways of trying to center Africa uh, or or be invested in a certain kind of um, black identity that that will come along with um, very problematic ways of thinking. But then, important to what I would be trying to do as a scholar is grasp. Hold on to explore, preserve and cultivate what uh, is useful within this kind of worldview that would have shaped shaped my upbringing and defend the idea that uh, that one can have a, a pan Africanist outlook that does not require these pitfalls, yeah. so to speak. Yeah.
1: Oh no that's i I love that answer because I think I mean one thing that I wanted to to talk to you about mm-hmm. was the emphasis that you've put in in various works on the importance of using African language and African philosophy mm-hmm. and you know, the importance of the oral tradition um, and, it, mm-hmm. and I just want, I think that when I had this, you know in my notes, I was thinking that this would be the kind of question I would ask talking specifically about like the the Kind of historical non translatable mm-hmm. ideas from Africana philosophy. I mean, from what you've been saying, it's so clearly, so you know, intricately tied into that. Yeah, just even this emphasis on particular words and mm-hmm. language can have mm-hmm. such a big impact on identity and the way that we think about identity. So, Absolutely. I would love to, to hear more about, in particular, language, the importance of language in your work.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, one of the paths not chosen, you know, for me would be the path of a linguist. I yeah. I really do love linguistics, and 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 I enjoy learning languages. And uh, you know, probably the best way to to frame what I'm interested in is cultures, you know, yeah. uh, to, broadly, right? And cultural difference, and what and what we can learn from cultural differences, right? And so. You know, in my career thus far, you know, an important manifestation of that would be the book that I edited uh, called "Listening to Ourselves," Mm -hmm. a multilingual anthology of African philosophy, where I invited uh, uh, professional African philosophers to write an essay in their language of ancestry, uh, their uh, you know, the the language associated with their ethnic background. And then, you know, the book is in a dual language format so it has English translations on the facing page. Right. And yeah, I mean part of part of what I wanted to highlight with a book like that, I mean, is actually even sort of something that Someone with my own cultural background could take for granted, right? As in terms of being someone who, for whom English is your native tongue, you know, you can take for granted as you make your way towards being a professional philosopher, the fact that the same tongue that was your first introduction to language is the same tongue in which you are being trained, right? And so it was important to me to sort of highlight that for philosophers directly from africa right then that um is almost never the case and and the uh the exceptions to the rules if there are any would be cases of people who you know are from the african continent but aren't you know but don't actually grow up speaking indigenous african tongues which which is a real thing that can happen but that that being the exception to the rule sort of makes the point starker um rather than you know being an exception that that lessens the point right so the importance of recognizing african languages as languages in which we philosophize because uh, because we i mean i believe we philosophize in all uh, human languages um but but recognizing that and then recognizing what that brings in terms of you know different denotations and connotations and you know different linguistic and conceptual resources that was you know what i was uh, really wanting to emphasize by putting together that project and you know i've had i've had interesting experiences where i have you know let someone read a chapter and someone who um so i'm thinking for example uh, the chapter by the ghanaian philosopher quasi weredu mm-hmm. and weredu is one of the most important living um, African philosophers. And, you know, his style in English reflects his training. And, you know, I believe he, I believe he studied in the UK. And, you know, there's a certain Anglo American style, we, we might say that. That his way, ways of writing philosophy in English can sort of be fit into, in a sense. And yet I remember letting uh, people read the chapter and them feeling like, oh, yeah, no, he really sounds like a, like, a, like an elder in the bush, so to speak. You know, like, a, like, a, like, like they could sort of hear in his use of language. Like it, he did not sound like a young person, right? Yeah. He sounded like someone very traditional in that sense. And that, to me, was was really interesting uh, as uh, as one of the things going on in the book. There is no African language, uh, no indigenous African language that that I speak fluently um, uh, at this point, unfortunately. Although, although I uh, learned some Swahili and have other languages that I would, um, you know, like to put in the time to learn and and. And, you know, it's even the case that in terms of my work on ancient Egyptian thought, I sort of made the decision that if I waited until I had mastered the language of the tech to start drawing attention to the tradition, that I you know, could end up waiting too long. And so, you know, it remains a goal of mine to, to, uh, to gain a real facility with ancient Egyptian language the language but yeah so I don't have don't have one of those in terms of uh, sort of my own ability although that of course didn't stop me from uh, putting together this book and along the way you know with you know in the case of every chapter learning interesting things about the, the language used in that chapter yeah. but my French is pretty good you know got got better you know while I was doing my PhD at Northwestern University and one of my mentors you know, uh, being this Senegalese philosopher,
2: yeah.
0: Suleiman Bashir Janya, talking with him and then eventually translating a book of his. I mean, really, there is nothing like translating a book to actually, you it. know, make you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like uh make you feel like, wow, actually, I shouldn't just say un peu if people <laughs> ask, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a little bit more than uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, or you know, which, which means a little bit for English. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. for those English. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but it's like you know, it's like. That would have been my answer if people asked me, but my ability to speak French um, before I translated the book. It was like, after I translated the book, I was like, yeah, I don't think I can say it anymore. I think that that would be mockery now. So, but um, and I also translated uh, an essay by the Martinican philosopher, M.A. Césaire, that was published in Social Text. Those experiences were important to me, and I have long-term goals. I don't know, you know, how soon. Yeah. They will be accomplished, but I have long-term goals of, of doing a lot more translating, specifically of, of Leopold Senghor, uh, who I mentioned before, yeah. who, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, he was the first president of independent Senegal, but was also a poet and, and also, importantly, a philosopher, and was friends with M.A. Césaire, who I've just mentioned. And the two of them, along with some other people, um, were important to founding a sort of movement in arts and thought known as Negritude in 1930s Paris. And, and yeah, the, the, those, those figures, very special and important to me. And part of the point that I'm making here is that if someone is interested in Africana philosophy, then uh, putting in some work you know to at least have french and not just english i think is greatly beneficial hugely important maybe is if i if i wanted to sort of you know, take it a step further uh, because, you know, because of the ways that colonization worked. Right. You know, to have English and French as uh, languages that you can read in really just, yeah, it opens up so much to you. And and it, it remains the case that there are a number of important works of African philosophy that have not been translated into English, but were written in French. Right, Uh, and so, so that's another way that language is important to me. I'm glad that uh, that I, you know, that I have French and that I have been able to to make use of it to also even, you know, spread the work of my mentor, whose book that I translated is in fact on Senghor. Also turns out that a long term goal of mine, if I if I can accomplish this is to do some translating of an Afro-Cuban thinker named Juan René Betancourt, you know, that of course, you know, having Spanish, you know, Helps to open up more of Africana philosophy to me. And of course, it should be obvious that, that having Portuguese would, would also do so because of the importance of the Afro Brazilian uh, tradition. You know, I'd like to even have Dutch. So, you know, th- these are some of the European languages that are uh, uh, important to me uh, in terms of trying to be able to really experience the diversity of uh, Africana philosophy as a, a very multilingual uh, field of discourse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all these languages you reference really highlight If you emphasize here. And I've been listening to your Africana podcast series on the history of philosophy without any gas, mm-hmm. uh, which I highly recommend to any listeners who haven't checked it out. Thank you. Uh, but you show there as well, just the, the expansive reach. Of Africana philosophy, both both in Africa and in the African diaspora. Yes, yeah. But before we discuss that, um, you mentioned learning French as important advice you have for people looking to do research on Africana philosophy. I would love to hear about what other advice you have for these researchers.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that you know, if I'm advising someone who is looking to specialize in Africana philosophy. One thing I would want to sort of encourage them to be prepared for is that, you know, is that they they may feel like they have to do so much outside work because of the fact that, you know, depending on where they are, they still may very likely be exposed to little of this in their own coursework. That, first of all, is uh, you know, I would say happily less and less the case, and I would encourage not sort of thinking that well, this is you know this is such a huge burden because you know I can't just focus on the Africana stuff you know and I'm being taught uh, all this you know mainstream Western canon stuff. I would uh, I would sort of discourage thinking of that as such as such a bad thing because I would I would encourage treating the education one receives in the standard canon as relevant and helpful yeah. for how one is going to approach one's work on African philosophy. And I don't say that to suggest that, you know, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that that one allows oneself to think of you know the the uh, the standard canon as the real stuff, and then and then you know here's the the fun application to Africana, no, you know that definitely wouldn't be the way that I would encourage thinking about it. But that being said, when you have a situation where there's a long history of people treating this stuff as philosophy, right mm-hmm. and and therefore, sort of, Offering a range of ways to approach that material, being exposed to how you know professional philosophers have you know approached the the standard figures of the canon is helpful to thinking about how you will you know approach figures. Let's let's just take the figures that that I've mentioned thus far: people like Du Bois, Senghor, uh, Cooper. So if you are going to be studying these people and you're going to be doing it in philosophy, why? What is it that you think that philosophy as a field with certain standardized approaches and a, a, you know, a set of figures that have, have shaped the conversation that professional philosophers tend to have, what is it about that disciplinary formation that you find useful for approaching these figures because because uh, you know I do think that that's an important question to ask. I mean when we talk about diversifying the canon in philosophy, uh, we have a focus understandably on how philosophy is poorer, is disadvantaged in a way by being narrow and you know we have a focus on how we enrich philosophy. By bringing uh, these, you know, you know, marginalized or non-Western traditions. And that's, that's appropriate. But, but uh, just, just as we can talk about how philosophy is enriched by looking at these figures, texts, and traditions, I think we actually do have to ask, how does philosophy enrich yeah. looking at those figures, texts, and traditions? Because, you know, the point that I made before that, you, you know, you could be in a literary discipline or a religious studies discipline or, you know, depending on which figure or which tradition we're talking about, there's going to be other traditions in terms of talking about Africana stuff. At the very least, there'll be, you know, Africana yeah. studies departments, right, which, which, which are interdisciplinary, but of course they're interdisciplinary primarily through literary, sociological, and historical these are, the, these are the kinds of yeah. fields that, you know, that that one is most often going to be exposed to through, say, a, a Black Studies department, precisely because philosophy has not shown itself interested enough in, in the past to be a sort of a common building block yeah. of such a department. It should not be assumed that philosophy is relevant to studying these figures, texts, and traditions. Since, it, since other people are very well able to do it, in other disciplines and departments, right? Yeah. And the question of why it's going to be useful to do it from the from the angle of philosophy has to be asked, and has to be asked in a way that's not about just sort of accepting the fact that philosophy has a certain ring mm-hmm. of depth or 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 prestige, you know, at, at the point where you want to, you know, devote your your life yeah. to this discipline in the sense of it, making a career in it you know you you have to ask how methods common within philosophy are useful for doing this work um, and that's that's why I would suggest that you know ideally that if, if one is um, embarking on a career within which one will end up focusing on African philosophy mm-hmm. ideally one is being exposed from the beginning to experts in the field so ideally you do have from even from the undergrad point of view exposure to the field but uh, as i'm suggesting exposure to the standard canon is i think important as well yeah. for all sorts of reasons what I've been suggesting is that even from the perspective of thinking about how you are going to usefully approach these figures, texts, and traditions, uh, you have a lot to learn. I think in that sense, from you know what you get in your courses, where you're being exposed to the six or seven early modern thinkers, or Plato and Aristotle, or yeah. Wittgenstein or Heidegger. Or etc. 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 So that's, I think, the first thing that I would say about what to value in your yeah. education. Um, yeah, you know, and 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 uh, I mean, you know, uh, from a practical perspective, you know, again, the the next thing would be to to familiarize yourself with experts in the field so that you can think about where you would like to do your graduate work, mm-hmm. because you know, choosing. The right place, choosing an advisor who's going to really be able to support your interest in that field is important. And again, I think we are, you know, finally at a stage where you don't have to sort of just accept that maybe your advisor will know a little bit that's relevant, but won't be an expert, and you know, you'll be, you know, innovating. I I mean, of course, there's going to be all sorts of continued innovation, but but you know, we're 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 moving towards having more of a critical mass of there being actually, you know. Experts that you can work with yeah. at, at a number of important institutions. I think that that's, you know, a start to the answer to the question.
1: I want to go back to what you said about having to evaluate mm-hmm. whether philosophy is a good lens with which to view these texts. Yes, uh, that, that was striking to me mm-hmm. because we were talking about this in the context of this podcast, right? As Africana philosophy. Uh, and you've mm-hmm. highlighted, and, and it seemed pretty evident to me mm-hmm. while reading some of the authors that you mentioned, that there are philosophical themes and ideas. Yes, present. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you to say a bit mm-hmm. more about that. I think there's like a range of things that I could see you meaning by that. Um, did you mean that we should evaluate whether philosophy as a discipline is the right lens to apply to these texts? Mm-hmm. Or, or, and this is maybe what I was thinking, mm-hmm. whether the mechanisms of institutional and academic philosophy are, are appropriate mm-hmm. and applicable mm-hmm. to these texts? This ties into another question I had for you, uh, if you don't mind me hitting me w- w- with both of them at once, um, which is how you recommend or how you think about integrating figures in the history of Africana philosophy into courses in- and syllabi. Mm-hmm. And just to say why I see these as connected, I think because it is one project to add figures to, uh, to broaden an already existing conversation mm-hmm. And it is another and I think maybe even wholly different project to say that we need to reevaluate the methods and the modes in which we are thinking about these texts. Mm-hmm because our current tools of philosophical evaluation just, just don't fit for whatever reason. So That's all by saying, I was wondering if you could expand on this idea mm. of reconi- reckoning with, with why philosophy is a research method, and in doing so and expanding on this, could you say a bit about syllabus mm. construction? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, yes, you're right that an important part of what I was saying is the question of like, you know, why, why philosophy, where philosophy means a certain kind of professionalized discipline. But I do actually think that there is also the separate but related question, why philosophy add, yeah. as a categorizing term, okay. right? So with the stuff that, that I look at from ancient Egypt, you know, there will have been Egyptologists who have been, you know, reading this stuff, and some of them may Think of the the stuff as philosophical, but generally it won't be in general the job of an Egyptologist, even an Egyptologist who thinks that there's philosophical stuff going on there to sort of integrate this material into a wider spectrum of, let's say, ancient philosophical texts where the point is not just to recognize these texts as philosophical, but to sort of integrate them into an ongoing conversation that professional philosophers have been having about how we can learn from ancient philosophical texts. And, you know, speaking of the podcast, which I did want to say some more about, the very first interview episode that we have is with uh, an Egyptologist, uh, Richard Parkinson, who has generally sort of categorized the material as poetry. And there's an interesting thing that happens in the interview where he's earlier on said poetry, you know, is the way that he likes to think about it. And he's he's even sort of suggested not philosophy, but then, you know, towards the end of the interview, there's a, you know, there's, there's a, an engagement that he and Peter Adamson, the host of the podcast, are having where, where he manages to then sort of arrive at what he thinks is profoundly philosophical
2: mm-hmm.
0: about the text. And so I, so I think that, you know, that, that, that that's interesting with respect to syllabi. And actually, I would also say with respect to someone who is interested in making a career in African okay. philosophy. To, to both the you know to both the tenured professor who's looking to diversify their so by and to the you know undergrad who's thinking maybe i might want to make a career in african philosophy to both of those people i would recommend the podcast uh, it is it is something that i am proud of i mean it is a it is a part of a much larger project that peter adamson is doing in terms of a global history of philosophy without any gaps so to speak, that that's what the project has become. He he didn't start off thinking of it that way, but realized how important it was to branch out to certain areas that he had not initially intended to include. I mean, you know, the question of whether it was at the beginning just a Western history of philosophy, the, you know, the complicating factor there is that his very expertise as a scholar is in an area that many would classify as non-Western philosophy because his area of specialty is philosophy in the Islamic world. And that was always from the beginning going to be an important part of the podcast and indeed turned out to be a very important uh, part of the podcast. But, you know, insofar as he studies philosophy in the Islamic world, uh, which importantly would include not just Islamic philosophers, but medieval Jewish philosophers as well, you know, that aspect of his work, you know, still was continuous with the ways in which philosophy in the Islamic world was very much stimulated with through the translation of Greek texts into Arabic, you know, made for this sort of continuous story that he was able to tell, starting with Thales, you know, in ancient Greece. Yeah. And so he's... so he, but he realized that it was important to, to tell the stories that don't start with babies. Yeah. And and first branched out by having um, a series of episodes on Indian philosophy co-written with Jonathan Ganeri. And you know, currently there is the series that he's doing with me on African philosophy. And you know, coming up next after he finishes the work that he's doing with me will be a series on Chinese philosophy co-written with Karen Lai. But having thus framed the, the general process Project, you know, the series of episodes that he's doing with me. I mean, you know, sort of what's going on there is that I was able to chart what we cover, and then it's a collaborative work where we we co-write the scripts. You know, uh, but but it's a quite an undertaking, yeah. and the fact that he. Is doing this while still currently in the Reformation. Just did an episode on Martin Luther in terms of the original series that started with Thales, mm-hmm. and while he's currently also doing these episodes with me, I mean, like, yeah, no, it's sort of amazing what yeah. he is able to accomplish.
1: It's really exciting there, too.
0: Yeah, it is really exciting, and 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 you know, and to be honest, yeah, there's there's no book that you could find. Yeah that would have the range and the extent of material, yeah. right, that we've already offered in terms of, uh, you know, work on Africana philosophy. And I don't, you know, say that to be boastful, but just a, a simple truth of what it, what it is for us to be doing this podcast yeah. and to, to be, I don't remember how many episodes we're in. I think we're in the 80s now in terms of, uh, you know, episode, you know, 80-whatever. Yeah. So the uh, it's it's so it's a big undertaking, yeah. but it's also meant to be accessible, yeah. you know. And so this is why uh, to both the person who's thinking about doing a career and also the person who is really just interested in diversifying their syllabi, you know, this is why I think that the podcast hopefully has something to offer both of them. Yeah, I uh, there's probably there's probably more to say, but uh, that that plugging the podcast turned out to be the majority of my answer there. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I mean, and it's, it's a wealth of, or I, this is my turn to mix up metaphors. It's a wealth, it's resource, a wealth of resources. I don't know. It's oh, yeah, a wealth. No, like it, it. It is. There's, there's a, a ton there. Uh, I mean, as you mentioned, there's just a num- sheer number of episodes, but they're, they've been great. I've, I've really, really Thank enjoyed you. listening
0: to them. I'm, 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 I don't know if it's okay to turn questions back on you for for the sake of this interview, but I'm sure. curious what, with some of the episodes that have stood out to you, you know, in terms of really piquing your interest.
1: I mean, I think that the one, the number one that that jumped out to me was the one on Anna Julia Cooper because right. I because I hadn't heard of her before, and just like to my detriment, but yeah, that episode I think made her and her philosophy sound sound so rich, and it, mm-hmm. it really resonated.
0: Yeah, I, and she is a very a very rich thinker, you know, and uh, there was there was the question. You know of how much how much could be packed into that episode? I, I you know I mean because she, she is you know she's she's definitely up there in terms of uh, among my favorite thinkers and you know what sort of naturally happened there is that even though there is like she lived a really long time she yeah. lived um, like like I always talk about how long Du Bois lived and yet she was born before Du Bois and died after him I so if, yeah, if I'm yeah. remembering. No, uh, I was yeah. I was struck so by that too. Yeah, yeah. She's she's she lived a long time. Now she it, it is different. She's she's not the same as Du Bois in terms of how much of her time she spent writing. They are very different in terms of the 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 uh the level of output. Yeah. But it remains the case that that it is important as uh, as we move forward for for people to be able to draw on stuff from various parts of her career and yeah. to appreciate her as someone who had different thoughts at different times as as all thinkers do but you know it is the case that her that she's most famous for her 1892 book A Voice from the South and what I was trying to say about writing that episode is that you know I found that even trying to say how much is going on throughout that book ended up not being the best way to go for me so that episode at least from my memory ends up delving really deeply into just the first chapter yeah. of, of a voice from the south, yeah. and 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 they, and and that's interesting because that's not even my favorite part of uh the book i mean the, i i teach I like teaching the chapter called Woman versus the Indian, which we do mention that chapter in the episode. I think we I think that might even be in the part where we point out that uh that there's a quotation from her in the US Passport. But despite it not being my favorite chapter in the book, and and I and I you know and not even the one that is to me even the most philosophically brilliant, yet and still sort of like going in depth right into you know into the ways that she's thinking about history yeah. and some sort of like the philosophical methodology i mean and also the conversation that she's having with other thinkers like alexander Crummel. yeah that's how that episode ended up you know turning out and yeah so yes, i i mean i'm i'm proud of that episode i am proud of the podcast as a whole and and i and i you know wanted to reflect for a moment there on on how i ended up writing that episode because i just was trying to give a sense of what we're trying to accomplish with the podcast, right? Again being that, that we want people to know a name like Anna Julia Cooper and that it would be my hope that, yeah. that that people would sort of gain an appreciation for, you know, the length of her career and the fact that she was a, a thinker who lived a long time and, and so on. But at the same time, so here's maybe where, you know, I would come back to the the point made earlier. What does it mean to approach these figures yeah. from the lens of philosophy right and and i and so you know i think that i think that what i ended up wanting to do in that episode was really dig into her arguments
2: yeah
0: in that first chapter of a voice from the south her arguments uh so as to to give a sense of her as a thinker through you know that that one example you know i mean it's yeah. the difference between you know if, if if i was primarily a historian not in the sense of being a historian of philosophy but like you know being someone employed in a history department i would have it would have mattered more to me to probably to to really give a good sense of the, you know um, the shape of her life and and so on but but in terms of you know having an audience who is interested in philosophy appreciating her you know uh, yeah i guess i just found that really digging into that first chapter was the way to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think, I mean, as you're talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. That that really, that is, but it is, I mean, it's something that that it's always so exciting to see when you discover or encounter Mm -hmm. for the first time a new new thinker Mm -hmm. and then see them treated, you know, especially women, especially black women, see them treated like as you see other philosophers treated. Exactly. Which I think is, you know, maybe not rare, but they can get put on the back burner in favor of a historical or biographical overview, I um, mean, you know, the, these these overviews are often excellent and, and valuable both for their own mm-hmm. sake, uh, as you've been saying, and, and for understanding philosophical value. But mm-hmm. it's really exciting for me as a philosopher. It was really exciting for me to see that pers- particular philosophical and, and argumentative value and interest, you know, centered uh, right from the get-go.
0: Yeah. Something that I'll you know throw in here is that I did a conference presentation once that was called "Anna Julia Cooper's a Voice from the South: Five Interpretive Challenges," something like that. In any case, I, I um, it was it was a paper in which I was puzzling over mm-hmm. various aspects of, of, of her thought in "A Voice from the South," and it was interesting. You know, I sort of I really felt it important at the beginning of the paper to say that that I take it for granted at this point, mm-hmm. right? That you know you've got Your On Liberty, you've got your genealogy of morals, you've got your phenomenology of spirit, and (laughs) you've got your voice from the south. Like, these are some of the major philosophical texts of the 19th century and so i you know i'm at the point where i take for granted that she's an important thinker and so when i do something like say well you know i don't understand how you know how she's saying this here and that there right i take it for granted that that's what you do when you sort of take someone to be like an important thinker because because that's what people do with mill nietzsche and hegel to you know the examples that i just used there i mean and it was interesting because i did feel like in the discussion there were times that people were reacting to me as if i was trying to just tear her down yeah you know and it and it made me think of that difficulty of us getting to the point of like yeah getting beyond the point of saying, Hey, this stuff deserves to be included, right? Yeah. And more like, hey, let's let's do the serious work. Yeah. Right. Of you know, of wrestling with, with the difficulties and the and the stuff that doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was an interesting experience that I thought was relevant to, to what you just said.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not only deserving of inclusion, but deserving of criticism and, and argumentation that- and Exactly. And scholarship, the kind of scholarship, yeah, to get to a turn to a point that, that you made, deserving of like the treatment we give in philosophy. Right. Well, if you don't mind me asking, one more question: mm-hmm. uh, if you could assign any text to all the the students at your institution, or at least all the philosophy students at your institution, what would it be?
0: It's going to be the Souls of Black Folk okay. um, by W. E. B. Du Bois, and it's going to be that because. I mean, I'm a big fan of Du Bois. I am, you know, currently working on a book on Du Bois. That would be my first sole author book. Yeah, I mean, he's my favorite philosopher, I would say. I mean, he's, you know, one way that I that I have put it is that, like, if someone told me, you're not allowed to work on anyone but Du Bois for the rest of your life, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, could, I could do that. You yeah. know, like, yeah. uh, I, I, it's not going to be the case that anyone's ever going to tell me that. And so it's going to be important to me. To work on Cooper, to work on Cuguano, to you know, yeah. to work on the tale of the Elephant Pleasant, et cetera, et cetera. Right, I really do love the Africana tradition as a whole. That that would be my passion, and 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 I take it that that's reflected in the podcast. But the re- but it wouldn't it wouldn't be hard for me to be restricted in that way because I do think there's just so much there over the course of his whole career, which which lasted a long time and which was very productive in terms of how much in terms of how much he wrote and published. The Souls of Black Folk is the book that one is most likely to hear about when hearing about him. And I would sort of suggest that we are moving towards the time where I think he will be seen as a as a figure who's very canon adjacent, if not in the canon. That is to say, you know, part, partly because you know, going back to the '80s with Appiah, and even one can go back further to the 1970s, and the way that some of the African American philosophers of that time were already starting to uh, look at Du Bois yeah. philosophically. You know, he's the person in that sense who started to he's 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 close to acceptance you know in that sense as a uh as a big major standard figure mm-hmm. and you know I don't say that to to say and you know and that's why yeah. and that's why he's valuable because that that would be sort of a weirdly conservative way to to uh, <laughs> say he's valuable but given that the, the 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 whole canon thing it's not just a sociological feature the, the benefit to having a canon is the ways that it sort of allows for there to be standard reference points that one can 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 talk about you know uh, that comes with that comes with certain problems of narrowness but you know but if we're if we're accounting for both the good and the bad of the ways that philosophy has been taught right then the ability to have certain common reference points uh, is a sort of value is a sort of value i'm suggesting that we're getting closer to the time where du bois will be seen as one of those standard reference points for those reasons and for the fact that mm, i might later on even this very night uh, <laughs> go back to my book and work on a chapter that's uh, that is on the Souls of black book yes. i think that that's all that is probably what led to my answer
1: well thank you so so much this was so wonderful i love doing these because i love to hear the reasons that people study these texts and, and <laughs> find it so interesting but and so exciting so thank you
0: well i'll just say thank you for having me i thought it was a, a very fun conversation as well
1: thank you for listening to new voices Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. Thank you to Selena Wang for her assistance researching for this episode. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D Major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armanici. For more information about the project, And for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. New Voices is a continuation of the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. You can also find past episodes under that name in all the same places. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.